You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 15. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and much more. And send your feedback, queries, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net and follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find our other social links at the top of the page. That would be LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, Google Plus. Yeah, I think there's some Google Plus on there. There's a few other ones. So yeah, just what go over there. there. Facebook maybe? Did you already say Facebook? I think I did. So yeah, they're all there. Everything but Pinterest. Wait, wait, what? No yeah. Pinterest. No Pinterest. I, I wish I wish we had a Pinterest, actually. <laughs> really? I, I see all these cool infographics all the time. I got nowhere to put them. All right, we're going to find it. We're, we're going to set up a Pinterest account. Yes. For Joe. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And with that, welcome to Coding Blocks. I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. And today, let's go ahead and get started with a little bit of podcast news. Uh, first and foremost, I'm actually working on and have been trying to wrap my head around Angular, and I finally feel like I understand it, which is kind of scary. You, you know, you just in at, time for it to be outsourced yeah, or outdated. No, no, actually, they're coming out with a new version of that. But every other thousand JavaScript libraries on the web are being currently deprecated. So uh, <laughs> daily, it seems like. But no, it's. It took me a little while, but between looking at the various different apps and actually going through a few tutorials and, and messing with the code, it finally started making sense. So, I will say though that at least Angular, you know, ha- having the Google back, it makes it feel a little bit more safe that it's uh, going to be around. Uh, but uh, what is it? GW uh, GWT? It mm. died. Well, okay. And that was Google. As soon as I bring up a one good, you have to go and bash it. Yeah, well, I'm going to pour one out for Google Reader right here, right now. <laughs> <laughs> what about Google Wave? I liked it. Yeah, well, you were like one of the three yeah. people on the planet, I think, that used it. It was great for my Dungeons and Dragons uh, campaign. Awesome. <laughs> but yeah, so um, hopefully here in the very near future, I'll, I, we might actually have a little bit of information on Angular. I might uh, come with some tips and whatnot. So yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I'd love to, to talk about Angular. I've always heard it's one that you can't sprinkle in there. Like you got to go full bore. Yeah, that's absolutely true. One of the things that I did learn this week that I'll throw out there that was kind of interesting is I wanted to do some server-side authentication or no authorization on on portions of it. That's not how that works. Like when you create your HTML template files, those actually get compiled into JavaScript string templates that are then used in your app. So it's not it's not doing any um, AJAX calls out to the server to get those templates. So even though you're creating HTML templates, those get compiled down into JavaScript. So that was one thing that I found really interesting. So that's just you know. Wait, when did you, he just say an oxymoron? Compiled JavaScript. Okay, like, not compiled. I thought I heard that. It gets it gets broken down into. <laughs> But it's actually through a build because I'm using Grunt and Bower and all that stuff. So, yeah. Anyways, all right, moving on. Interesting. Uh, also, we just got done talking about SQL. Um, it had a big two-parter there. But I actually just went to a meetup on beginning XML and SQL Server. And there's some stuff that I knew about. Like, I knew that, that XML was kind of like a native type in SQL and, and that you could query and do some cool stuff with XPath. What I didn't realize, and this was the big, the big takeaway for me personally, is that you can generate XML really easily and really complex XML. So you can actually do joins and do things, and it'll group by, and it'll come out well-formed XML documents, which is great for integration-type projects. So that was really awesome, and the title of that was Beginning XML and SQL Server with Don Wirt, and we'll have a link to that. Cool. And Yeah, and 
I also want to give a, a shout out and thanks to uh, Rye Guy Welch. We got a five star review on iTunes from him. Ooh. Nice little write up here. Says uh, informative and entertaining. Best best podcast for programmers. Maybe the only one of its kind. Discusses current trends, issues, and technologies in software development. Great quality and easy to listen to. So thank you. Yeah, and we got another one also from Glenster seventy five. It was also a five star review on iTunes. And he writes, best coding podcast. I learn something new every episode. That's excellent. That's what we're here for. So thanks again for taking the time to write that and click the uh, the review in iTunes. Yeah, and we really appreciate those those reviews. You know, and we talk about it all the time. But one of the big reasons, I don't know if we ever talked about why we like them so much, is aside from you know letting us know how we're doing and if there's anything we can do better, it also bumps us up. And so a lot more people end up seeing us whenever we get a review. So it really helps us get the word out there. And, and uh, it's awesome. Yeah, and we're trying to make people better programmers, including ourselves. I mean, so. not, not to mention that it's just motivation in and of itself. Yeah, it really is. Anytime we get that, it, it's it's a super booster to us. Yep. So that's awesome. All right. So, so what are we talking about? Uh, speaking of super boosters, today we're talking about a tool called Endepend and uh, what it does for you. So um, first of all, we should probably say that uh, we actually got a um, a free professional license from uh, Patrick's. Uh, I'm not going to be able to say it's Smachia. Um, Close sorry, enough. Patrick. We did write you an email to see how to to say your name, but uh, we sent it a little late, so sorry about that. I'll uh, blame Alan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> anyway. So, you know, take that into account when you think about it. So some of the stuff, you know, we're saying uh, we did get free copies, but well, we're going to try to be brutally honest and say what we feel. So, you know, there you have it. Yep. And uh, just before we get started, one of the – one of the roadblocks to us getting rolling with independent, at least I I know myself and I think outlaw also had some issues is it seemed like we were having some pretty major instability for, for me. Well, what I, before you get into that though, just in all fairness, cause I actually did have a little bit of a back and forth with Patrick on this and, and cause he was saying that he, I, I did have some instability with it. Like it brought studio down to its knees for me. And, uh, you know, I, I had some back and forth with him and with Patrick and he was saying that he didn't have any of the problems that I was having. And he was using similar plugins like, uh, a web essentials or a resharper or dot cover or anything like that. Post sharp maybe. And, um, you know, even though we had similar plugins, he wasn't experiencing it. And we even compared, you know, like size of projects. So, so yeah, so with that, what I found was causing the problem for me is I had updated to Visual Studio 2013, and the project I was working on was basically hosted in the Git repository. And with Visual Studio 2013, there is a new Git plugin that is on by default. And what I found is that was eating up like 30% of my CPU on an i7 with 16 gigs of RAM, like it was just, it was destroying my machine. Like I couldn't even type in Visual Studio. I disabled that plugin by going into the options, and basically had no more problems. So Independ worked for me after that. So if if anybody's seeing these kind of issues and you've got a fairly large project you're working on or a big solution, I would recommend going in there and disabling that Git plugin. Well, we've actually talked about Git plugins in the past. Um, in a, in a past episode, shoot, I think it was episode two, but, uh, um, yeah, they really don't work very well. Yeah, Uh, no, like I I have, I know that there are some people that just absolutely love them, but 
for me, I haven't had good luck with any of them. And this is an example of one. Uh, it was, sorry, it was episode three. This was a uh, uh, episode three source control etiquette, but I, I haven't had good luck with any of them. This is an example of one that was, you know, straight from Microsoft, you know, yeah. here's the horse's mouth and, and it still started causing problems where, uh, it was causing the, uh, causing studio to just, just churn away. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was pretty ridiculous. My CPU sat at 30% constantly and it was that get plug in running. So, uh, just wanted to preface that. That's one of the reasons why, um, it took us a little bit of time to get around to finishing this kind of thing up. Cause we were trying to figure out exactly what was going on. So, uh, and I want to say, too, it's actually been great for me. And one thing that, that kind of didn't make sense when we were talking about the performance problems initially is that uh, Endpin doesn't really seem like it's doing a whole lot when you're just kind of doing your day job. Like most things, you kind of need to run something specific or pull up a dashboard and click around into it. So I don't really know where that kind of thing would come from. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, but I do want to point out there are a couple different versions uh, available for of independent one of them specifically is a build server uh, license that you get that would be perfect for your ci server however we're not going to be focusing on that version in this episode we're going to be talking about the features of the uh, visual studio add-in but i will say one thing about the build server that sounded pretty cool when you look at the feature set was if you have that integrated it'll do your snapshots for you build your reports for you on the fly so it, it is it is a cool feature if you got a team working on, you know, doing multiple releases and whatnot and being able to see how your code changes over time. So yeah, absolutely. Um so let's get into some of the feature set of Independent. And this thing's uh, it's a pretty big monster. Like there's a lot of functionality in here. So we're not going to be going over them all in depth because this would turn into hours and hours. But we do want to hit on a lot of the key parts. So one of the things I want to point out is when you install this thing into Visual Studio, down in the bottom right corner of Visual Studio, there is a little circle that shows up. And it is kind of like a little quick type thing for independent so that you can get to a lot of the functionality. So that that's one way you can do it. And the other is to hit the independent menu up at the top. I didn't even know about the circle. That's awesome. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, I made the mistake of turning that on for resharper <laughs> mistake. So in that thing, you just mouse over and it kind of gives you a little pop-up menu with a lot of your top type things. So it's almost like a quick, um, uh, I don't know, like a, a running dashboard for you there. And speaking of the dashboard, that's actually my favorite feature. Um, I think that's kind of the main thing. It's really the hub of Endpend. So if you, it, it sets up a little menu here in between like SQL and tools and depending on the version of um, Visual Studio that you're running. And you just click dashboards right at the top and it brings up this beautiful dashboard with a bunch of numbers and you can drill into these little lists and graphs and, and kind of see what's going on. But it gives you a great snapshot of your project. All right, so... The next feature that I want to talk about are the rules. And this is what I found to be like pretty amazing and independent was when you open this thing up, you, you basically get a, a, a panel that shows you the type of thing. So you get critical rules violated, rules violated, syntax or execution errors, okay rules, queries, like all this stuff. Like it, it's really amazing. Now, when you open this up, what you get is you get this list, and if you click like on the critical rules and you say, all right, drill into it, it gives you this 
summary window that at the top of it gives you the link query. And yes, I said link that basically queries the output of your code base. So it queries both the IL and your code to join this stuff together to generate these reports to find out where uh, either problems in your code or where your dependencies lie and all that. And what I really liked about that in this is at the bottom of the link query on most of them, that he usually has a link at the bottom that you can click that will take you to describing what you're actually looking at. Because, I mean, you might get pretty overwhelmed when you're going through this stuff because there is a... Yeah, I totally overwhelmed. Like when you first start getting into the rules, yours over. Well, <laughs> I guess maybe my code, the code that I was looking at, weren't uh, <laughs> such great projects. But yeah, there was like a whole slew of different rules. It was like, oh, you're breaking this rule, and you're breaking that rule, and I'm like, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, it's uh it's pretty in depth. I mean. It, it can point out a lot of deficiencies in your code. Now, in all fairness, though, not every one of the rules is going to have that link. So sometimes that can get a little confusing because you don't, you might not know, like, well, why isn't that one there? Right. And so, like, one of the things I'll point out is there was a uh, there's a complexity report, and that, for me, that was a real eye opener. So the way that they define this, if you click the link at the bottom of the link query it would take you to the site and they kind of give you just a real quick overview. And I'm talking about the ILCC. So it's the, uh, interpreted language, cyclomatic complexity score. And basically what it does, this one's good. If you have visual basic code versus just C sharp, because if you're looking at the other CC ranking, that's only for C sharp. If you look at the ILCC, then it's in inspecting the IL code itself and does the rankings based off that. And so one of the keys they talk about is like they they count they uh, calculate the score by doing a one is for an if you add two if there's a for loop, and so they basically said a general rule of thumb is anything over twenty you should probably think about refactoring anything over forty turns into just a, a code mess. In the way I've understood cyclic, um, I haven't read the description you have, but the way I've kind of understood it before when I looked in um, like the enterprise version of Visual Studio is that it's the number of execution paths that run through that method. So if you were to kind of go through by hand and you know test like every use case that that method handles, then that's kind of where you're at. So that means that there's 40 things that you need to test if your score is 40 if you're running through this by hand, and that's a lot. That's a lot of different things that's happening in that method. And that's probably something you should break up. Especially when when the whole thing is to keep them simple, right? right. So here, here's here's a little anecdotal type thing that was rather humorous. So ran this on a code base that I've worked on, and so let's keep in mind: over twenty should refactor, over forty is pretty horrible. So one file that that was in here was a seven seventy five, a seven seventy five, and. It actually made me laugh because I had to work in this file before, and it took me three weeks to make some changes. So three I'm imagining weeks. like ifs within ifs within loops within switch statements cases. Within ifs. All I mean, everything you could possibly think of. It was it was that, and when I saw it pop up, I was like, "Well, that explains it." And so, circling back around, like this particular feature of Independ, I found extremely useful because if you let's say that you were a project manager or something and you got this report spit out to you you could look at this and say oh i have some people that need to work on these particular set of files 
and this thing is just a nested nightmare, right? This isn't going to be something that they're going to be able to knock out in a couple hours. You know, this is going to be something we're really going to have to slate some time aside for because this is going to take a little bit of work through because if there's that many, you know, code execution paths, you're probably going to break something when you go in there and start messing with this. Yep. Yeah, well, the thing that I found great about the the dashboard, well, there's also, we should mention too, there's another report, a uh, version of that report from the dashboard that is an HTML version of it. And but the thing that I found great about the report in general, though, was just like um, as a source of like if you were looking for a source of inspiration, like, you know, you had some free cycles. You're like, okay, what part of the code base should I go and fix? Right. You have this kind of report available to you or to other developers on your team. And you can say, oh, here's here's a class like your 700 one that (laughs) maybe I should go back and, uh, you know, clean up and refactor or, you know, break it apart. It gives you like a priority list of things you need to fix. And I also really like it from a CYA perspective. So I can go tell the boss, like, look, here's why it took so long. I'm not crazy. It's supposed to be 20 or less, and it's 775. So you owe me dinner. Right. And and you probably want to have it before and after so that it wasn't you that created that 775, right? That's right. Yeah, those trend, those trend lines are really important. Yeah, I brought it up from 20 to 775. <laughs> Check it out, boss. Yep. So yeah, that that was a. I found that entire section just incredibly helpful. What's really cool about that rule section is they have a ton of canned ones already, and then they let you modify them, and you can tell it what you think's critical or what's not, and you can write your own link queries to create your own custom reports, and you can use theirs as baselines to figure out what kind of report you actually want to write. So it, that entire section was extremely powerful and, and like I said, very eye-opening. Yeah, there, there's a whole slew of rules in there. Yeah, I was just thinking about a couple of rules I might like to write, but they're all pretty much invalid because I was thinking about the actual source code, like variable names less than three or something like that. But I don't think that really applies here because Endpend acts on like the DLLs. It's static analysis, so not so much the code, but the actual generated files. The cool thing about that, though, is that you don't need the code to run this. So. Right. Um, here's one thing. I will, I'll go through just a couple of these they have. So they, they have rules for base class should not be used as derivatives. Um, class shouldn't be deep in the inheritance tree. No descendant should be sealed if possible. Overrides of method should be call, should call base.method. Do not hide base class methods. Like, I mean, it, they have a dead code one, potentially dead types, potentially dead methods, fields. I mean, the list of things that you can get out of your code base and things that you could improve, are they're all there. Now, whether or not you're going to be able to go through all these, man. Yeah, but but <clears throat> one that I, I'm not particularly a fan of, instance fields should be prefixed with a M underscore. I do not like that. I've never liked that. Yeah, ReSharper is okay with just the underscore and me too. <laughs> <laughs> So that, that's the rules section. And actually, uh, well, while we're still there, um, we were going to talk about this a little later, but it kind of makes sense to put it here. Um, there's a couple of um, my favorite rules that I noticed when working on some of my stuff. And one of those is mutually excu- exclusive namespaces. So that's a, when you've got one namespace that depends on another, and that other one depends on it. So A depends on B, B depends on A. While that's strictly not a problem, and when you're talking about the namespace level, it is if you're talking about like the DLL assembly level. But it's just kind of a it's a good example of somewhere where you're crossing some boundaries and probably need to rethink some things. Yeah. And also another one that I really liked is um, methods that could have a lower visibility. 
So you've got it marked as internal. Or it could be private or maybe public that could be private. I like that sort of thing because it kind of um, it lets someone see visually when they're in the file the kind of things that are talking outside and who they should be talking to, which is really nice. And I, I love seeing very few public methods because that's really the footprint and the API of your application or assembly. Yeah, I mean, some of these rules, I mean, in by themselves, they're they're great. But I just imagine like, like we mentioned the uh, the build server version of it, and I just see like how much more powerful that could be there to be able to like send out alerts or you know for the entire team to be able to see uh, you know that that report there. Yeah, to me, like that's the real value add of independent is it's over time. So I want to be able to see that arrow going up or down for each metric. Well, I mean, like, like uh, there's the, one of the rules it can report on third-party uh, code usage, like yeah. na- and assemblies used, namespaces used, types. Like, you know, if you had, if a, a, you know, if your manager needed to know, like, hey, what are some of the other libraries they were using? Like, what's our exposure here on third-party, you know, utilities? Right? Then it, it's rules like that that might be able to help them out, and they don't have to go digging into the code. Yeah, and actually, um, I've got a blog post cooking on this that uh, we'll have a link to. Uh, whenever I finish the draft, but uh, I actually looked at a couple of high-profile open-source projects like Entity Framework and Signal R, and what I thought interesting is um, Entity Framework had ninety-two thousand lines of code, and Signal R had eighteen thousand. So you know it's like fifteen, sixteen, eighteen percent, something like that of the code size. But the actual third-party assemblies, Entity had thirty, and Signal R had forty-two. So wow. it's touching a lot of different stuff. But even further than that, you can actually see the number of third-party method calls. So Entity Framework had forty, uh, sorry, four thousand five hundred, and Signal R had five hundred. So tons of assemblies, but not really doing much with them. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, hmm. it is cool to analyze all this stuff. I mean, and that's what this does. It makes it really easy to kind of break down your code base. Yep. Yeah. So uh, you know, another one of the features there. Let's get into it. The dependency graph. All right. So uh, you know, using the dependency graph. You, You've, we've seen these type of graphs before, right, where uh, it just graphs out all your code into little bubbles and then has lines linking everything to everything that's related, right? Mm-hmm. Except this one kind of goes a bit above and beyond your normal bubble, right? So, um, you know, if you, hover, if you hover over any one particular uh, bubble, as you're hovering over it, you'll get... Uh, IL instruction counts, lines of code counts, comments, percentage of uh, comments. You know, you, you'll get data about each one of these as you're going, as you just hover over them. And then, if you're not happy with the way it draws the dependency graph, you can change that. You can say, hey, you know what? Change the box sizes. You know, by default, it's going to size the boxes based on the number of lines of code. But you could change that and say, you know what? Just make them constant or uh, instead, let me base it on the uh, IL complexity, right? Now, there's an interesting view of your code, right? So you, you can see, like, the bigger ones are the ones that you might need to go focus some more time on, right? Yep. And I like if you ever ask the question of yourself, like, what is all this crap? And this is a great way to answer that question. Well, we don't call it crap, for starters. <laughs> well, sometimes I call it crap. Oh, <laughs> He must have seen the projects that I ran this <laughs> on. <laughs> I've, I've called my code much worse. <laughs> but, you know, a, a couple of other things I like about it were um, there are ways to actually exclude some of the items in here. And another feature that I really like compared to the one that Visual Studio has baked in 
So this thing generated fast, even on a pretty large code base. The one in Visual Studio, the last time I tried to do it, like I basically had to walk away from my computer, come back, you know, 15 minutes later. This thing actually cranked this out pretty quick, and it's it's a pretty useful utility. Yeah, I thought it was going to take a while to do it for any framework, but it popped right up. Yeah, I mean, whatever they've done behind the scenes is pretty efficient. Yeah, kudos. Yeah. And actually, um, while we're talking about that graph, there's the tree map view, which is actually really cool, too. The thing I like about it is that it really lets you see how your code is split up. It's similar to the dependency graph. It's just kind of a different layout. At least that's how I view it. But it's a good way of saying, like, 75% of your code is this or 13% of your code is that. And so it's a good way of kind of visualizing just how big the various pieces are. Wait, did you say the tree map? Yeah, the tree map metric view or the squares. Oh, the the honeycomb thing? Yeah. This one, I wasn't as crazy about this one. Um, that's the code <laughs> metrics not, not view to, from the menu. Just so yeah, only it, because, like, I, I guess maybe I didn't understand it. Maybe, maybe that's where I had more problems with this one. Yeah, it's, I, like, it's not my favorite visualization. You know, I like the abstract <laughs> versus instability one the most. But really, um, what I like about this one is it shows me like I'm looking at a project right now, and I can see that the test namespace or one of the test namespaces is one of the biggest um, sections of my code, and that's because I do a lot of code generation there. And I, and it does a lot of repetitive type stuff, and so it's just a lot of boilerplate. But oh, I can I see. see that it's probably you know fifteen percent of my project just looking at it. Yeah, which is kind of what the the you know the dependency graph, the default version of the dependency graph, where it was based based off the of lines of code, could do something similar to that for you. Um, but yeah, I, you know, this this view, like for anyone who's familiar with uh, this tool, um, I remember. A while back, there was a tool called Spacemonger, and you could point it to you know any drive or folder on your on your hard drive or in your computer, and it would uh, you know lay out a representation of what folders were taking up uh, you know the most space, and it used this exact same type of uh, visual representation for it. And so I guess like when I saw this, I was like, wait a minute, what am I looking at here? But um. Yeah, I'm actually I'm looking at Colorbind right now, which does a you know it's one of my open source projects that does a lot of color comparisons. And one thing that's interesting is I can see that there's one comparison method, um, CIDE2000, is probably half of all the comparison code, and all the other ones are small. It's because it's just a really big method. There's a lot of math going on. But what's also funny is if I look at the actual the the tree view of the tests. Because I generated these tests and because I, I do basically a bunch of conversions from this to that and verify it's right and I do it all based off of T4 and XML files, it's all like pretty much even. So I've got a nice honeycomb, as Alan said. So it's uh, just got a nice little pattern here because each section is about even. Yeah, this this view on large projects kind of just makes my eyes go crazy. Uh, yeah. yeah, and that, that might have been maybe why I wasn't as crazy about this. This wasn't, this was of all the features. This was not my favorite. Yeah, I would agree. This, the, it's a cool view into your code from just a graphical representation, but I don't know how useful it is for me. Yeah. I mean, like for example, the, the project that I'm looking at it, it breaks it down into, uh, each line of code represents 472.2 pixels. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, I, I don't know. I think on a smaller code base, this one might be a little bit more useful. I, I'm trying to think, like, how we can describe this better for the listener. Like, it's trying to create a, a bubble, uh, to represent the size of each, um, class of within your code, you know, and then 
it t- based on the overall number of classes and the size and the number of lines for each, you know, it tries to give her a respective uh, size bubble represented as a square, really, uh, for each one of those classes. And that way you can see based on the size of the squares and how they mix in. And, and it arranges all of those squares by uh, namespace. And then assembly, too. And, so. and projects, yeah. yeah. Well, well, that's if you have it chosen at a particular level. So you can have it recreate this graph for methods, fields, okay, types, enough, namespaces, right. assemblies. And that's, I mean, again, it, I think this is one of those ones to where you'd really have to spend some time in it to find out where the value would be for you. But for me, the like everything's so tiny in dots going down because there's so much code and the stuff that I've examined that it, it just, I don't know. It doesn't seem as useful to me. Yeah. I'd really love to find somebody that maybe, maybe somebody who's listening in that does use this tool and uses this specific feature that has a great use case for it. I'd, I'd love to hear your feedback on it and then it'll give me a new perspective on, Oh, that's how I should be using that thing more effectively. I mean, I will say if you if you click on something, it will actually take you to the code. Like if you double click, if you can double click on that one pixel where that, you know, well, you can zoom in. Well, no, double click it. It will take you to the line you, of code. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. It, it it'll take you to okay, so like the current level that I'm looking at was based on methods, and it'll take you into that method, but you can actually just zoom in. So oh, yeah, so in you. your case where you're having problems fitting because you know the default is to fit in the window right right and so that's why you're seeing such small little squares but uh you could actually just you know zoom in and then click on it yeah it's interesting it's a neat view again uh you know yep it's yeah. kind of interesting for me to see that like look at a dll and say this section of the dlr this namespace is much bigger than the other ones so it's just kind of an interesting view of it uh, i don't know that i would really act based upon it but it's cool so Tying into this, uh, well, going back to our to the conversation about the dependency graph, tying into that, there's also a dependency matrix, which I, I thought would be a pretty cool view of like uh, a, a cross-cut representation of like which namespace is dependent on other namespaces, you know, and, and uh, you know how, what that representation looked like, and then for any one of those, you could dig into it. So. Uh, you know, if you clicked on that, it would then take you into back to the dependency graph to where you could see what was actually happening there. So, I guess you know, if you, for the listeners that you know, to to visualize what I mean by the dependency matrix, like think of a set of rows on the left that are namespaces, and then uh, columns that are the set of namespaces as well, and then there's interjection points for like where those namespaces interject and or, or cross and how many references there are yeah do those like logic puzzles you know yep that's you exactly what i was thinking yep. it's like sally's dog is not named jed and uh you know jed has a red collar and then you kind of like x this stuff out and you end up finding the, all, all the results but it basically looks something like that it reminded me of like a multiplication table when i was a kid because yep. i had one like that where you know numbers along the left and numbers across the top so going into this one a little bit more because this is also one of my favorite ones on here so talking about his cross-cutting type things where, you know, you have the same list of, of assemblies on the left and the same list of assemblies going across the top, where they intersect on that grid, they have a number showing you the number of, of dependencies. And what's really cool is if you click that number, 
it will actually open up your dependency graph and show you how these things cross relate. Right. Well, it's the the number of the methods, right? Yeah. That are that are you know the number of times that those are used. And it's beautiful because it'll actually the ones that are used a lot it makes them bigger, and the ones that aren't used as much it makes smaller. Like it's just really cool how they integrated this. I I, I love this feature. And one thing we we haven't actually mentioned is that. Um, Patrick or independent company, whoever is, uh, put a lot of detail uh, like all over the place. It's like hidden value. So I'm looking at one of the HTML reports right now, and I notice there's a little question mark next to the dependency matrix. I click it, and it's got a wonderful description of it and more online documentation telling you all about this graph and what it means, what the number means, and what it's supposed to show you, and what we can do with that. And it's just these little hidden nuggets of value. You can actually even like within the dependency matrix. So where where two namespaces cross and there's like a number to say you know, how many how many uh, times um, one calls the other, right? You could actually double click on that and zoom in on it, and then if you zoomed in again, it'll actually get into from the dependency matrix these specific calls oh. uh, of what's happening there. Nice. So you don't even have to go into the dependency graph to see that interaction. You can stay within the matrix view if that happens to be your preferred uh, way of viewing this. Oh, they have and, a nice little animation. Yeah, and, and even if you didn't want to do it that way too, like if you, uh, um, you know, there, there's, there's plus signs on both the top and bottom, so you could expand it out uh, you know the, the namespaces that, so that you could see where these things were actually happening. So you didn't even have to do the, the double click on it to zoom in. So to Joe's point, uh, you know, as far as the you know, uh, hidden functionality, you know, th- that's just another example where it's like there's multiple ways that you could get into this data. Uh, and, you know, th- there's just like hidden little features where you know, like maybe for some, maybe for one person, it would just be uh, without even thinking about it, they would just automatically start double-clicking everything they see, and then they get to the data. Or someone else might you know, notice the plus sign and be like, hey, let me just expand this out, and I'll get to it that way. Yeah, and just moving your mouse around, they update little uh, like info windows all over the place. So it's, I mean, it's a very interactive grid. Yeah, and we're going to talk about my favorite graph. Which one's that? Abstractness versus instability. Oh, yeah, that one was nice. Yep, so it's a square, one corner abstract, one corner instable. So the closer you are to the top left, the more abstract, the more to the bottom right, instable, unstable. Uh, But the other two sides of the square, the corners, are zone of pain and zone of uselessness. (laughs) So this is great because I'm I'm always worried about going too far towards the uselessness. And so it's kind of cool to see, uh, you know, some of my projects and also some of the um, open source projects and see where they kind of line up. So most of the ones I've seen have done a great job of staying in the green as far as being um, not too abstract, not too, uh, I'm sorry, uh, green being not too useless and not too painful. But most have been on the instable side, which I thought was interesting. Even my stuff, which I thought I was kind of crazy with interfaces and whatnot. It's interesting to see that I wasn't as high on the abstract meter as I thought I would be. Yeah, I mean that's what I found a lot too. Was that uh, more often than not, there, you know, I might have like one or two, three namespaces that were you know leaned more to the abstract side, but uh, you know the bulk of everything was like, oh crap, that's in the stable. But right. I loved this view though because this view was totally inspiring to be able to see like, oh that that needs to be fixed. 
You know, it's funny to see here, though, is, um, like the test DLLs are often very much to the instable sign and sometimes into the zone of pain. So the actual, like, the core library or logic is doing good, but the tests are not so much. They're fragile. They depend on concrete types, yada, yada. Now, this was an example, though, like, I wasn't able to find this this graph in the online, within the dashboard, within the app. I only saw this one within the HTML report. Yeah, I noticed that, too. And one thing that I I didn't like about this report is that, if you're doing something that has a lot of uh, a lot of uh, dependencies, like uh, I think I was looking at Signal R, then a lot of them end up kind of crowding into one section sometimes, and you can't actually read the labels anymore because it's just text overlaying text, and it looks like a big black hairball. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, it's got to be in there somewhere. I just haven't seen it, and I guess uh, I'm I'm assuming that the reason for this uh, HTML report was just so that if you had it on a build server, maybe that you could just you know have people point to that you know, maybe management or whatever they could uh, you know be able to see that report without having access to Visual Studio per se. But I mean that that's just an assumption on my point. I, I'm not sure if that's how the build server work the build server per- portion works. Yeah, and what I can imagine doing is you know you can correlate with management and say you know what we've been having bugs in this area and we can see that this DLL is in this zone. So if we can improve this metric, then maybe we can improve the bug metric. Well, I guess kind of jumping ahead a bit, though. But another one of the features that um, Independ provides is that as you're making changes and and you you're running you you have Independ attached to your project, it's tracking these over time. So you right. see charted data as to like you know how did your lines of code did the line of code increase or decrease did your rule violations increase or decrease like you know, you see all of these over time like how's happened so to your point about going back to management being able to point it out you know, you could maybe <laughs> a, a case might be that you could say hey look you know we specifically implemented the feature xyz went out here's where the complexity went up and coincidentally so did our errors right right, right. And I actually attach a number to this, you know, crazy technical debt word. And also, you can even, you know, forgetting about the trend charts, which are awesome, the trend lines and the kind of up-down stuff you can get on, a, like, a build-to-build basis, you can also diff snapshots. So if I've got, you know, release 5, release 6, I can take a look at those and see how it went. And I think that's really powerful. That, to me, is, like, the main thing, is being able to see how this stuff tracks over time. Yeah, I mean, again, from a management standpoint, I mean, as a coder, you like to see your code get better over time but that that's really for your own edification but from from a management perspective these kind of reports could be really valuable because we all know as code gets more complex not only do you get more errors but it's harder to maintain so the next time you got to go back and touch it it, it's it takes twice the amount of time or three times the amount of time it's hard to say well i think that's also a key differentiator between this and other products is the fact that you do get this reporting over time yeah that you can go back to you know your manager and, and be able to point it out exactly like no here i can quantify it yeah there you go it's it's not just the developer saying no 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 or you know we shouldn't do this you, right you can actually show it so um and in a way that they'll at least be able to to somewhat understand, even if they don't understand what the aisle number is, you can you can easily explain that they want numbers, right? Exactly. Having a chart definitely helps your helps your uh, situation. Yep. Yeah. So uh, 
Oh, you can also import the code coverage. And so like if you're using a tool like a, a dot cover, for example, you can import that in and get it, uh, you know, as part of your dashboard, uh, you know, output there. Yeah, and that's nice because a lot of times if you're using a code coverage tool, you're probably generating some sort of report already. And you don't want to have two reports. That's just annoying. So why not bring that into the independent report? Yeah. Another feature, and th- this is a little baffling. I'm, well, hold on, just to, I mean, I guess, I don't know if that was clear. I want to make sure that that was known for, like, that's code coverage for tests. So, like, you can actually right. see and quantify, like, he, you know, we have tests that are covering X percentage of our code base, right? And you can do, you can see that on a, a namespace level or a class level, right? And this is, this is, you know, bringing that data in from some other tool and including it into this report. So going back to the example that we gave about going back to your manager with like specific numbers, right? Now they could see, hey, we're doing pretty well. Look at our code coverage. You know, I think we're doing pretty well on it. Or maybe you're not doing pretty well, <laughs> in which case you might have to have a talking to. Right. So the next feature I want to talk about, and this is, I, I mean, it's a feature, but it seemed like all this already existed in the Visual Studio plugin. But they have this Visual Independent standalone that you can actually launch from the uh, tools submenu under Independent. And what it seems to do is really just bring up their own interface that they had created at one point that has all the same functionality, but it's laid out slightly differently. So, so the menus that were sub menus of independent are now main menus. And it's, I don't know, maybe it's laid out a little bit more, more coherently in that everything kind of has its own space, uh, which for me was nice because that was one of the things about independent in the visual studio thing is it seemed like the windows were just everywhere. Uh, so this kind of lays it out a little bit better, and and you just get more direct access to everything. But it seems like it's all the same exact functionality that exists inside Visual Studio itself. So yeah, you just can't drill down so much. You know, you, you lose some of that kind of interactivity. But for me, I, I prefer the report because it gives me the high level information that I want. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. I, that double click thing on the matrix is just awesome. I didn't know that was there. I'm still doing it. <laughs> You're still fascinated by the animation. I, I, I like the animation. I like the fact that it actually does something. That's, that's the awesome. little things in life. It really is. So thank you for the animation. <laughs> yeah, you know, maybe um, now uh, we've talked a little bit about some of the features. We're going to talk about some of the good, but uh, I want to go ahead and mention this um, before I forget. Uh, I think sound effects would be really cool for this plugin. <laughs> what do you guys think? Oh god, like a toilet flushing when you went to the critical. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> is that if your code was really bad like exactly. oh crap yeah like if you did good play a little happy song if you did bad and like wah, 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 wah. i don't really want to hear oh man i, don't I, I hear, hear like the, the price is right every time right. the price is right wrong horn should be played at some point that's definitely uh, a feature ask yeah that's hilarious All yeah right. Uh, so so we've we've already talked about a lot of the features and and while doing that we've we've already crossed over some of the like the the, the really good features of this uh we've mentioned you know the rules about it um uh, we've mentioned uh what else have we mentioned well about the rules we mentioned that you know uh if you wanted to ha- see exclusive namespaces if you want to see dead types or methods or methods that have lower visibility or too long we've yeah we've talked about uh our, our love for the dependency graph and matrix and um, you know the my favorite the report love the report uh we've talked about the abstract and instability graph as you know these are all like great 
pros of this uh and in um you know specifically like i think did we did you already mention about like what how independ defined that i know we went, covered the pain versus the um oh shoot what was it called again abstract versus instability and yeah yeah zone yeah of but, pain but and zone of uselessness there you go the zone of uselessness and the zone of pain right which were fantastic names for that but you know specifically there was a section where uh in the independ html report where you know, like if you clicked on that little question mark and it went in and defined it and says that the abstractness versus in- instability diagram helps to detect which assemblies are potentially painful to maintain i.e. concrete and stable and which assemblies are potentially useless i.e. abstract and unstable <laughs> and then uh, abstractness is if an assembly contains many abstract types i.e. interfaces and abstract classes and few concrete types it is considered as abstract versus stability and assembly is considered stable if its types are used by a lot of types of tier assemblies in the in these yeah in this condition uh stable means painful to modify so, so you, you want to strike the balance which is yeah well i thought i that's why i really liked that that graph though is because uh you know you know there's this there's this line that goes from you know the top left of the graph down to the bottom right of the graph and you know ideally you want to be on that line in this zone of green but you really want to be somewhere towards the middle of that you don't want to be towards you know all the way to the left or all the way to the right um yeah, this should be this should almost be called the how am i doing graph like, if oh, you just wanted to see one graph to say like, how am i doing you know and there was one other thing though that i don't know that we mentioned that i thought was kind of interesting though uh at least from because you know, like there's plenty of tools out there that talk about your lines of code this one talks about also your percentage of comments. Oh yeah, yeah, that that was cool. Yeah, I, and, and and not only so, not only could you see that from the dashboard point of view, but you could also go into. There was another place where I'll have to remember where I found it, where you could actually see the relationships based on on uh, the comments uh, that were in there. Speaking of which, uh, you know, we talked about uh, I, I pulled some metrics off some some kind of top metri- some top projects. Thirty six point seven two percent of JSON.net is lines is comments. So I didn't say that very elegantly. At uh, Entity Framework, nope, sorry, wrong. this is all tech too. Uh, I got a bunch of reports here, sorry, but it's really cool to be able to see that percentage. And uh, yeah, eighteen percent of color mine is. Commented. I actually wasn't able to pull the comment percentages for Entity Framework and Signal R, which is what I really wanted to tell you, because apparently they exist in multiple languages, so that metric doesn't make sense. But uh, uh, at least the tool is good enough to tell me, you know, why it's not going to give me that number. Very hmm. cool. Uh, what else did we like about it? Found some. The oh, interactive man, we have dashboard. For everything. <laughs> oh no, no. Yeah, I mean the interactive dashboard was cool. Again, the rules. We love those. Yeah, and, um, also just a very helpful UI. So, you know, I just mentioned an example there. And another one I liked is uh, I, cl- I was clicking around in the UI in Visual Studio, and it came across a link that said generate a graph of something, and I didn't really know what it meant, so I clicked it. And it actually brought up this little window with screenshots of how to do it and what it meant and links to more information. So through and through, this this product is very well documented, and it's very much targeted for developers and what you want to be using it for. So I thought that, that was really cool and really helpful. 
Yeah, I mean, this project is also like 10 years in the making, too. So yeah, yeah. there's been a little bit of time to document a thing or two here or there. Yeah, yeah. but I like, I don't, I didn't have to go Googling anything really. It's, it's nice to think that like the information that I want is right where I want it to be. So when I wonder, hmm, what does this button do? There's a little help tip that says, this is what that button does. Yeah, because I mean, really, it's almost an overload of information, but they did a fantastic job of bringing that information to, to meaning very quickly without having to hunt around for it, which is, is excellent. Yeah. So, you know, we talked about a lot of, a lot of the the pros of it. And before we go on, I I just want to ask dear listener, (laughs) leave us a review on iTunes (laughs) or, you know, leave us a review on Stitcher. Just, just leave us a review. (laughs) We love those reviews. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, like, as Joe mentioned earlier, they they really uh, do help, um, other listeners to you know new listeners to find us so we really appreciate it and it provides a lot of uh motivation for us and and we like getting that feedback so you know leave us a review uh share it with your friends you know sh- share us with your 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 enemies you know you got to keep those those guys close right. <laughs> right you don't want you don't want them knowing more than you know so you know Share share it with everybody, and uh, you know, as Alan mentioned, you can find links at the top of uh, codingblocks.net for Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Google Plus, Pinterest, and uh, oh wait, no, no, no Pinterest, not yet. Sorry, <laughs> I want to keep my info- infographics sorted. It's coming. <laughs> it's coming. Okay, but the other ones are there. Yeah. All right. All right. So now let's let's get into the part that that nobody really likes, but um, the- but. The you know, bad parts of the yeah, review. The bad parts. like So the things that we found a little bit frustrating. So, uh, Yeah. And for me... Um, Should we all talk sad now? For part of <laughs> right. Yeah, we're not, we're not happy about this. Uh, but uh, information overload. Information overload was the big thing for me. So first coming into it, there is a bit of learning curve. You know, it's um, there's kind of a lot of stuff you need to know. And if you just kind of click to that dashboard after installing it, then there's just a lot of numbers in your face and it's overwhelming, but the information is there for a reason. It's there to guide you. You know, I get it, but sometimes, you know, it's just a, a little bit overwhelming and a little bit confusing. It, and, it takes a while to, to really learn it and figure out like, Hey man, what does this number mean? Why do I care about that? Yeah, and like one of the things that we actually mentioned that we liked was about the rules and how it shows you exactly how it found that code. It's got oh nice, my god, it's got a nice description. But the first time I clicked on a rule to yes. see what the heck does this mean? And it Why like is it showing me code. late code? Yeah. yeah, I'm like, what the heck? This is is this is a bug? What happened here? So that was a little bit confusing. So not a big deal, but yeah, it did it did take a moment to uh, <laughs> to get to appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he also had here, uh, did, were you going to talk about that we should have better separation? Yeah, so some of the graphs will actually show you on an assembly level, you know, where the issues are. It graphs it really nicely, but some of the things, it just kind of aggregates for the whole solution. So uh, I know for me, a lot of my tests were um, just kind of the actual unit test code or, or functional test codes was kind of dirty stuff. It was talking directly to databases, file systems sometimes. It was doing all sorts of weird, wacky stuff, particularly the functional tests or the integration tests. And that kind of stuff really brought the scores down. And I didn't like that, that it was kind of combined with my other stuff. But I also didn't want to lose it. You know, I could have just not selected that assembly. But then, you know, I, I want to see that stuff, too. It's just I don't want it tarnishing my baby. <laughs> Nobody talks bad about my baby. Yeah. All right. So some of the things that, that, that I had on my list were, one, 
and and this one was big for me is I wish it honored the theme. Oh so I my used, god, yes! I used the dark theme inside oh Visual god. Studio, and and all the windows that came in for Independent were white. Are bright, stark white. Yeah, it, in I my mean, dark cubicle, I almost got blinded when I first saw this pop up on three monitors. It's actually it, it's pretty funny because. Once you go to the dark theme, you just oh, you, you get back. in that relaxed state. Once it, you go dark, you don't come back. It, it's, it's, it's is it like this to you? Like when that screen came <laughs> at me, it was like it was screaming at me. I was like, "Why are you yelling?" I at mean, me? we we've talked about. I think we we talked about my love for the Visual Studio dark theme um, back when, when we were talking about IntelliJ one time before. Like, man, that that theme is awesome. Like, when, once you go to the dark side, you're there. It, it's fantastic. I came back, man. No. Especially if you already work in like a a, a, a dark a dark area, <laughs> you know you don't want that. You don't want that bright white screen straining your eyes. So you know the the dark screen is great. Yeah, it's, uh, why don't why don't they print books on black paper? It would be but, expensive. But the book isn't lighting up the room. <laughs> you would have to ink the rest of the page. That would that's be true. expensive. But the book isn't lighting up the room though. Yeah, that's yeah, a good it's point. Like burning my eyeballs. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, that was one. Um, I mean, the, I got a suntan from it the first time it opened up. <laughs> and like, the there was so time, much UV. It was just time. like... Shoom. Now, the the next thing that, that killed me, and I don't know how you solve this, but, dude, there were pop-up windows all over the place. Like, if you click something, you would see some extra additional pop-ups, and they would just randomly, <laughs> it, it felt like, show up somewhere in Visual Well, this Studio. goes back to, like, when Joe was clicking on rules and, like, code was suddenly popping up you're like yes, wait a minute did i just did, did i just break something did i just like hack this thing like what happened why is it suddenly showing me the code so i will say this i mean the counter to that is you can dock those windows yeah okay which is which is cool and i ended up doing that but that brings me to my next point of this there's so much information on there that if you're using Independ, you need more than one monitor. Well, hold on. Okay. Well, wait. Before we go, before we go off that window moment, though, because like one thing that I did find frustrating is that um, I, I'm probably in a small minority of people that because even Microsoft doesn't seem to, if they're listening, test this feature properly that they've supported in their operating system for God knows how long. But I like to have the taskbar at the top. Not everybody likes it in the default bottom of the monitor position. Are you talking about Windows Taskbar? Yes. Why would you do that? Oh, man, no. Because, because... That's your fault. You have yeah. to live with no. the consequences. <laughs> <laughs> no. It's just awesome. It's just... That, that's, that's I like that. That's how I like it. All right? And and even Microsoft has had this position, and I've noticed that like, sometimes with the independent windows, and I don't know if it's if it's independent that's deciding where to lay the window out, or if it's just the you know a windows that's it's telling it where to lay the window out. But even with, but I'm trying, I'm I'm saying that even with just basic Windows applications, I've seen this problem too, where it doesn't it doesn't account for someone having the taskbar in any other position other than the bottom. And so it's like, oh, well, let's just go to zero, zero. Right. And it throws a window up there or somewhere where it's below the taskbar to where like now when you want to move it, you, you know, if if it's a, if it's an application, then maybe you could just like alt space to bring up the, the context menu to, to get to the move option. But in some of these dockable windows within Studio, I haven't found a way to, to get to those like that. And you're like, oh my god, it's stuck. How do I, <laughs> how do I move, move this window? Bar, don't you? Yeah, I'm like, well, it's in my way. 
<laughs> yeah, I was willing to let the dark theme go, but this is too much. Yeah, I, I say you move that taskbar back down to the bottom. I, you know what? I would gladly trade. I'll take the dark theme over. I, you know, lay the windows wherever. I don't care. Outlaw just likes to cause problems for other companies. <laughs> oh um, man! Yeah, the, thus his name. So, uh, <laughs> um, so what was the other one I had on here? Oh, this one drove me crazy. And this is not just independent. This is anybody who has a grid that they put in a window. If you double click that little divider bar in the column header at the top, it should expand that thing to fit the contents. And it, I did that a couple of times because that's what I'm used to doing. And it shrinks it down to nothing. I, I about lost my mind. So <laughs> I have never ran into where. Where did you run into that? Like you know, if you're you guys a, are weird. I think you're like really nitpicking now. No, no, that's not nitpicking. <laughs> We've gone beyond color. <laughs> like you know, you know, like if uh, God, you know, you I want to like, double click stuff and it get big. <laughs> no, man. Like if you go to the expander of a column, typically if you double click it, oh, I know, I know the use case shit you're, so you're describing. It do, I just didn't see that anywhere you within. Uh, you didn't try it. I, I guess not. Freaking, you could go do it on any one of them. It shrinks down to nothing. Like, like and then you have I'll to ha- expand it. I'll off. go. I'll have to go looking to find one. So that that killed me. Um, I want I, quick stuff. Make it big. Yes, that's right. That's <laughs> that's exactly what I want. Uh, what was it? Oh, oh, here was another one. I don't remember which report this was on, but um, on some most of the things as we mentioned earlier, the interface is really helpful, right? Like it. As you mouse over things, it updates little information windows all over the place. Like it might update two or three. There was one that you could actually highlight a row, like you could click a row, and I wanted it to lock in that information. But if I tried to mouse away from the row, if I accidentally moused over another row, then it would update the information in those pop-up windows. And that was kind of frustrating because I highlighted the row that I wanted the information for, and if I moved the mouse, then it would try and update them anyway. Oh, so you got to mouse fast. That, that's you, what no, you got to mouse too perfectly slow. horizontal. No, 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 you don't. No, you don't. No, you don't. You just got to. You just got to mouse fast. Oh, so I had to speed mouse across. <laughs> no, I mean it's not like when I say fast. I mean like you can see. Uh, okay, so for example, I'm looking at the dependency matrix, right? And if I highlight, I think that's where I was. if I if I highlight an intersection, and you can see like if if your your the speed of your mouse is moving uh, fast enough to where it continues showing you the highlights versus if you're not like so for example there's a, a show info window when once you get to an intersection and then at that intersection it'll show you uh, things about that like what methods of the namespace uh, are you know, are the reason for the intersection right and if you want to get to that if you just mouse to it quick it doesn't have to be a perfect horizontal line to get okay. to it you just don't take your time well my whole thing is and it's not it's not an unreasonable speed that you got to do it no at but but if you click a row wouldn't you say that generally speaking that's the row that you want the information for well yeah. okay yeah. I, I'm, I'm not yeah yeah okay all right so that that was a nitpick i mean again this is not a show this is not a deal breaker just you know some of the things that if they're listening it'd be awesome to yeah, to so, check out. so far we got you know, a little bit of learning curve and some UI issues. Michael? Yeah, yeah, so so I wasn't crazy about the way you had to install it though. Like I really wish it was a little bit more seamless. It, you know, cuz you have to download the zip file and then unpack it, find some place that you decide you want to put it and then run an installer on top of that to add it in. You know, I, I really wish that it was a little bit more uh seamless in the MSI. 
Mm. But I like that it doesn't yeah. stick stuff in the registry. I, I'm not big on the whole Windows kind of install. That part I'm fine with. I'm fine. With, I'm fine with that it didn't require like you know. Well, mm, uh, I'm fine that the, the bulk of it was self-contained. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way, right? Um, I, I just wish that it had been a little bit. Uh, you know that the installer wasn't so manual, such a manual process, right? Right. So yeah. I mean, that, that seems like easily done, but I think maybe, maybe my least favorite feature, like the thing that I wish would change the most was that I didn't like that my solution file actually had to change in order to incorporate into pen. So if I wanted to see the reports from this, uh, you, I had to attach it to the solution in, in order to see that, and as part of that, like it's actually making a change to the solution, which, you know, for your environment that might not be such a big deal, but you know, maybe like what if like okay, so as an example, Joe, you ran this on multiple open source projects, right? Right. You wouldn't want to commit that back up, right? Because then whoever's looking at that pull request might go, well, wait a minute, I don't have independent. Right. Why, why are you introducing some new tool that like? Who knows what plugins people are going to have? You can't assume that they're going to have a plugin, right? It right? shouldn't break anything, but it is weird to be checking that sort of stuff in, or like a work well, situation or something. You know, it's yeah. right, and and that's what I mean by it. Is it is it? It's not necessarily that I'm worried that it's going to break something. Just it felt weird that it was it was a required step, and I just I, I'm sure that there's a good reason why it's doing that. I don't know what that reason is. But I, I just wish that it could. I wish there was a way. Like, if there was any one request that I would have for that team, it would be figure out a way to make to make this thing not have to modify any of the project or solution files. Well, it's only modifying the solution, but you know, I would agree with that. So, um, <clears throat> and uh, there was one other gotcha though that I ran into, and you guys didn't seem to run into this one because. You had already, uh, I suppose you already had it, but like if you didn't want older versions of .NET on your system, um, when I went to um, go through the installer, I actually had a pop up where, you know, a message where I had to install the older uh, .NET 3.5 for backwards compatibility. Um, you know, it, it, it was required. I mean, you guys didn't run into that, but that was one thing I was like, well, that's a shame because what if I just, I don't want that. Okay. Yeah. Why should I be required to install a version of the framework that I don't want? And I, I wasn't sure if that was because maybe there's some, like I said, this is a 10-year-old project. So I wasn't sure if maybe there's some parts of the project that you know were still built on that or something. I, I don't know. I think because I have 20 different versions of Visual Studio <laughs> that <laughs> <Right>. covered it. <laughs> One of those uh, took care of it? Yeah, I'm pretty certain. Yeah, So so some of those things that I mentioned... You know, I mean, you know, yeah, they're they're in the bad, but they're also like you know features I'd like to see uh, changed, you know, or or added. So, yeah. So just to recap real quick, um, so as far as good type stuff, we we really like the graphs, we really like the interactivity, we really like some of the rules and the ability to use this stuff over time. Stuff we're not so crazy about is the learning curve and kind of information overload, some of the UI issues. And uh, just like the install actual integration with the projects we're not crazy about. But also in the like, we we really like what it gives you. 
right? Absolutely. What what it does for you in terms of your project and your code base. I mean, it above and beyond all the features, what it actually drives you to doing is pretty awesome. So, uh, you know, along the topic, going along the lines of, you know, features we'd like to see in it, you know, one, one feature that I thought would be nice that I'd like to see is if let's run through the scenario where I'm a developer and a team and maybe I have my own copy of independent, I would, I would like for those reports to be in a more shareable format. Um, you know, right now, uh, yeah, I could run the dashboard inside of Visual Studio and I could see that. But the closest thing that I have to something that I could share with my manager um, would be, you know, if I take the zip, if I zip up the HTML files and say, yeah, here you go and, and look at that. And, and hopefully he'll understand, you know, what needs to be done and, and, and be able to see that correctly. But I, I wish that there was like a more, an easy, more easily shareable version of that report. So like a PDF? That'd be one option, sure. A series of tweets. Um, that <laughs> might not be the option I was thinking of. Maybe, maybe some like you know Instagrams of like, hey, here's a picture of this report. Here's a picture. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Although that would be an option for you, or I maybe want, a Pinterest for all your. I almost wonder if that build uh, version of this wouldn't solve some of that, you know, because well, it builds those HTML files for but you. But again, and, the scenario that I'm describing though is like, let's picture that you are in a team of you know you're bringing your own tools with you. So right. like maybe you have your own copy of independent, maybe you have your own copy of resharper. And these are tools that you've grown to depend on. No pun intended <laughs> that, that, uh, you want to continue to use, right. Even, even, uh, you know, when you are at work. So, you know, you're the only person on your team that has that. And you want to be able to create this report so that you can give to your manager and say like, here's things that we should look into and, and I can back it up with fact. And here's the reason. Right. So yeah, fair enough. That's something I'd like to see change. Uh, oh, and another thing that I thought would be nice to see was that, um, <laughs> and you know, this might be one grasping for you know more, but uh, if it, if it had the ability to do analysis on more than just uh, your .NET code, so maybe like if you were in a web based project, if it could do analysis on your HTML and JavaScript, you know, maybe your CSS. Who cares about CSS really, though? <laughs> okay, fine, fine, <laughs> CSS too. I was trying to maybe bring in some sort of JS lint or CSS lint information and incorporate that somehow. It'd be nice. Yeah, I mean, however it got done. Yeah. Uh, also, kind of in the same vein as uh, you're talking about reports being more shareable, I thought it'd be really cool to have some sort of GitHub <laughs> integration. Like, I, I know, like, if, um, there's all sorts of GitHub plugins now, so you can go to a project and see uh, latest build, code coverage build status green that sort of stuff i thought it'd be cool to show some of my stats if i could even if it was just a little um plug in that read an xml file or something that i had inside the project I, I don't really know how that works but i thought it'd be cool to kind of show like you know one of those graphs on my actual github page like, i thought that'd be really neat and also i actually emailed patrick about this uh, i read a, a white paper from google um what i've been thinking about a lot about um like metrics based refactoring and this is the perfect kind of tool for that but uh, one thing I, I read from them is they're talking about how you can uh, find like the worst parts of your code, the the parts that need the most refactoring by looking at source code history of bug fixes. And so if you see um, the top 10% of your bug fix files, then that's where your biggest problems are. And so I thought it'd be cool to see something like that if, if this product could integrate with source code. I know that's a whole lot of work and there's a bunch of different source control vendors and I, I don't really know how that, well that would work, but... I thought it'd be cool to see something like that. So that was my idea. Cool. So the big question, 
who would you recommend this to? So, <laughs> go ahead. Well, for me, uh, I, I see the most value in the sort of trends over time. So if you have got those kind of craftsman type people, or if you've got a big, messy project that you're having problems with, or you just like to keep your stuff clean, then I, I see this as a, a definite win. So especially the build, to be able to, be able to see that stuff over time and see, am I getting better? Am I getting worse? And I think it's just really valuable. So if you're that kind of person who's got that kind of itch and who really wants to see those numbers getting better, then this is a great tool for you. Yeah, I personally, I think that there's there's a couple places where I could see this. If you're working on uh, either a large code base, whether it's legacy or new or whatever it is, if you're working on that and you want to get it to a point to where it's maintainable and and you can make edits to it without <laughs> you know spending weeks and months trying to do that kind of thing, I think this could be an invaluable tool because as you go, you make your improvements, it's snapshotting, you see your trends of how things are improving. And hopefully in the future, things would go a little bit easier. Also, I, I would see this tool um, fairly much for a management-type position, uh, maybe the build one, if you can integrate it into a CI pipeline, for having a manager be able to start basing his estimates off the kind of stuff going on. If you know that your developers are going to go into a certain section of the code and it is notoriously nasty, reported on in there then you can kind of know that you know these time estimates are going to take a little bit longer and then the last one i would say is if you are somebody that likes working on open source projects and you really want to show that you're a stud this might not be a bad way to get your foot in the door doing some cool stuff i mean this is kind of thinking outside the box but you you get a hold of some open source projects that have some you know some glaring deficiencies and you go in there and you clean them up because you kind of have you know, uh, a little. Just don't check in the modified solution. Don't check in the modified solution, <laughs> but you have a bit of an advantage, right? Because you see these things a little bit easier than somebody else would. So you could go in and really help out a project by doing something like that. So I, I can definitely see this tool being useful in in more than a few situations. And I mean, and, and as somebody who just wants to be a code craftsman, this can really yeah, help you out. I, I definitely see it in that in that same light too. Um, you know, if you're the type that does care about trying to improve, you know, your own craft, uh, this can definitely help you there and, and, you know, find places of, of inspiration that, oh, here's something that I should go and, and update. This is too complex or this is too big or whatever the reason might be, whatever the rule that it's violating might be, then this can definitely help you find that and then go and clean that up. But <clears throat> as you mentioned, you, you stole my thunder um, because the, the one that I was really thinking about, but this is pure conjecture on my part because I haven't seen how the build server version works. But uh, that's the one that I was really thinking of that would be like, extremely valuable if you could if if you like you said could uh, integrate that into your build pipeline to where that is automatically getting uh um you know those reports are being generated in that html that we mentioned was automatically being shared on some public server where you know um developers and qa and managers and like could could see that and and be able to easily comment on it and discuss it then uh you i see that as a huge value for the team not only but uh, that, but you know, as well as being able to view all the trending across that as well, you know that 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 would be huge if you know in terms of uh, collaboration of that being able to be uh, you know a, a discussion point among your team. So, but you know, and I say that though because <clears throat> keep in mind, you know, at the price, 
you know, per developer seat, you're talking about like 400 bones. Yeah, it's not cheap. I mean, it's it's an investment, and I, I don't know what the upgrade path is for it. Uh, I didn't see that anywhere, but hmm. you know, I was just thinking, um, what would probably be like, what would make me most likely to buy this if I didn't already have it? You know, if like if I had to go buy it right now, and I was thinking. If I was working with a crappy team or maybe a few crappy people that I don't really know how to say it, it's like, hey, you know what? Maybe I can go get this tool, hook it up to the build server, or just kind of run it on my own and be able to say in some sort of meeting, like, hey, guys, check it out. We're making this piece of crap even worse. Uh, maybe we could take a look at some of these specific rules and talk about it again next week and just kind of use that as a nice way of kind of um, improving the quality of your and everyone else's life. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of see this as one of those tools, and I think we can all agree that we'd recommend this, right? I mean, I don't know that it works for every situation, but from the functionality we've seen, it's it's a very nice set of features. The The only thing I can say is, like, typically when you're looking at this kind of price of tools, it's generally used more in large businesses where they're maintaining large code bases, right? So... I would think as a manager, if this is if you are if you care about technical debt, then this is probably something you should look into. Yeah, well, if you think about how many hours, like how many developer hours does it take to hit five hundred bucks? You know, it's not that much. So if you can save a couple of days every year, then you're doing great, right? Well, are you talking about like on a, a you know, per developer seat, or are you talking about the, the for the build server? Though? I'm still thinking build. That's probably how I think about it. Maybe that's wrong, but. So, so if for one build server we're talking about six hundred and three dollars at the moment, based on current, yeah. Uh, so if you've you got a team of ten developers, euro and you save, to US dollar, yeah, you save a half hour each over the course of a year, then you've you know you've more than made your money back. And I'm sure you're going to save much more than that. Yeah, and even at the developer seat, I mean, you could probably argue that having the developers have instant access to that through a developer toolset in Visual Studio might save you more than the cost of it. So. I mean, oh yeah, I'm I'm not arguing that. Yeah. I'm just saying that uh, you know, you'd have to weigh it, you know, based on like the size of your team, size of your project, like you know, which one, which which one do you think is going to be the better spent money for you per developer seat or you know per build machine? Yeah. So again, it's not cheap, but most most tools aren't. <laughs> so. But I love the I love the fact that there was the option for that though. Yeah. Right. It is nice. So, so I thought that was a great. A, oh, hold uh, up! I was feature. I was completely wrong. So check it out. Updates with a version are free, as their support contacts with. No, there's in a version. I'm sorry, it doesn't yeah, there, have that. There's update. totally an upgrade. So, like you know, if you wanted to upgrade the license, uh, you can get a quote for it, but it's going to be based on whatever you previously had. And then, right. You know, see how that goes. Yeah. So so that's so, all that part. That pretty much wraps that up, but let's get into the resources we liked. So, as Joe mentioned, you know, one of the uh, major drawbacks was there is a lot, a lot of information to take in that you can easily be overwhelmed with. And here comes Plural Sight to the rescue once again. Believe it or not, there is a Plural Sight uh, training course on Independent. Yeah, you know what? It's almost like these are the, just the tools of the trade. Like, if you're going to be a .NET developer, you got to have ReSharper, you got to have Pluralsight, and um, you know maybe Independent is good for you too. Yeah, I, I when when I found that in there, I was like, oh my god, Pluralsight! 
Yeah. Are you yeah. kidding me? If you've thought about it, you've got everything you. plural side. It's like you knew what I wanted, and boom, there it is. You're like <laughs> you're like the Google of learning. That's yeah. awesome. And uh, also, uh, I want to mention I'm going to have a blog post coming up here. At, uh, I actually went and uh, I mentioned this a few times. Uh, went and compared some uh, high profile um, open source projects like Entity Framework and Signal R. And so I've got a spreadsheet there that you can see in tables and kind of talking about like, some of the differences. Of course, you can't really compare projects. It doesn't make sense. It really makes more sense to kind of track yours over time. But it's still cool to see. Now, hold on now. Because the last time somebody I, I, pre-discussed yeah. their blog entry, Pascal Coder had some words. Yeah, you got to be careful about that. Uh, the, <laughs> the link one is still in, in the works. <laughs> yeah. hey, I'm, I'm typing a word a week. All right? I'm just saying. I'm just no, saying. I already got this as a draft. It's it's. Uh, Cocked yeah, and ready. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Okay. okay. Yeah. Me too. Okay. <laughs> All right. So let's get in, let's get into the tips of the week. All right. And uh, I'm first up here. So I there's a bookmark that I used years ago, and I recently uh, been working on a big HTML form and and needed it again. And it's wonderful. It's um it's called form space auto dash fill. And there's a couple of them, but this is the one I think is easy to see. Just drag it from the page to your bookmark the bar in like Chrome or whatever. Then if you're on a big form. You click it, and it fills text areas in with random stuff. Phone numbers get phone numbery type stuff. Emails get email looking. Oh type wait a stuff. minute! So I thought I thought you were talking about like a Chrome autofill type feature. No. This is a garbage autofill. This yeah. is like lipsumorum greeking. But it's like real words. I think it like takes a paragraph and kind of like puts one word in each form field. So what's nice oh, about that? So it doesn't like you know do the Steve Ballmer Ibsen. No, I don't know where it gets text. It might get it from somewhere funny. I don't really know, but uh, that, w- that would be pretty funny. But what I like about it is that because it does these real human readable words, I can kind of go back to the form, hit refresh, and make sure that things kind of show up in the right order, and I didn't have to fill out these 17 fields by hand. So that's really nice. That well, is nice. I, I kind of feel like we got to mention this for a moment real quick before we continue on the the tips of the week since since i kind of i don't think we've discussed this before but you know we've all heard about you know, we've all used various greeking uh type generators before you've seen it before the ipsum lorem blah 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 you can't read it doesn't mean anything type generators where you, if you just want to block a text right so if you haven't already found it we'll include a link to this the bomber ipsum.com which is the steve bomber ipsum generator and it's fantastic because you could just generate some random text and it'll say stuff like Linux is not in the public domain, Windows innovation, Windows phone, Microsoft, Word winning. I've got my kids brainwashed. Woo! Google is not a real company. Programming being developers, 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 developers just like that 50 more times. Just, you know, it's hilarious. So I, I highly recommend that for your next, uh, your next project where you just want some random text in there. Beautiful. <laughs> All right. So, uh, I actually had one tip of the week, and it grew. So, uh, real quick, again, disable Git in Visual Studio 2013 if you see that it's killing you. The one that I was initially going to do, and I'll still do, is called ConEmu. And I believe it stands for Console Emulator. And it's like a replacement for your DOS command. So, it's not Windows PowerShell, but allows you to maximize your window and do, like, tabbed consoles. Which I find very useful for doing like you know various different command prompt type stuff, so that's one. I'll have a link in the show notes, and then the other one, and this only came up because Joe talked about his meetup with SQL and XML, and have you ever run into a situation 
where you had a text field coming from a database query, and it would cut off the characters because it'll only return so much in the grid. Or even if you try to do it to text, it'll still cut off the characters. And so then you're like, well, how am I going to get all this out of here? I just want to run this query and get the data back out so I can see what's in there, right? A way that you can cheat it in SQL Server Management Studio is you can cast that field as XML. It'll turn it into a clickable field in the grid, and then it'll open it up, and you'll get all the text. So I love that. I, I so love that feature. I just used it the other day. So, yeah, if you ever need to get all the contents out of a data field and it keeps truncating it, cast it as an XML. You can't just, like, make your column wider to the right. That's no. what I do. Just I double just click the line. I just, yeah, just double click it and then it and all it expands. cuts off after so many then, hundreds of then characters. Then you can see it all. Yeah, and I've even tried to go into the options in SQL Server Management Studio and max out that. You can't, it, it won't do it. So cast it as XML, you're good to go. You can click that cell, and it'll open it up in a new window, and so, you can get So maybe all the this content. is another one where Microsoft 2 isn't honoring, like, when you double-click it, it's not getting big enough. No, theirs does. Theirs does. It works properly. Well, apparently it doesn't get too big enough. It's, no, like, no. it's limited. They truncate the cell, though. Right, so, yeah, you yeah. know, I'm just saying, maybe they but need to fix that. But their double-click cell column thing works the way <laughs> it should. Did, did you already mention, like, we, we talked about it, uh, about... You know, our disdain for the Git plugins. Did you already mention that one too? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Um, sorry, uh, I was in my uh, Steve Ballmer Ipsum generator. Yeah, appreciate that. <laughs> well, you know, developers, developers, developers. <laughs> so uh, here, here was an awesome little tip. I didn't even know this existed, and I just, uh, you know, happily stumbled upon it. But did you know in Chrome, like if you are like me, you have multiple tabs open, you can pick multiple tabs in a single time and move them. So if you wanted to rearrange the order of your tabs, or maybe you want to take five tabs and move them into their own separate window, all right, well, here's what you do. You hold shift, you click on the tabs that you want to move, and you'll see them start to line light up, and then you can move those tabs, and you can either move them into their own separate window, or you can move them into, you know, rearrange them into the tabs. But the tabs that you haven't selected are going to be kind of grayed out, and these other ones are going to be brought to the forefront. They're going to be highlighted, and you can move multiple tabs at one time. To add to your tip, you can use control as well. So if you don't want, if you don't want things that are right next to each other, you can choose, you can control click and get them if they're separated. And then if you move them, it slides them together. Oh, yeah, true. Sorry. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. So, <laughs> I, I didn't even realize that was there, and I just happened to accidentally stumble across that when I when I pressed the button, and I'm like, oh, what just happened? How did I move those two tabs at the same time? Yeah, that's awesome. Black voodoo magic. Beautiful. All right. So with that, we'll be putting the links and the, and the show notes up on... Uh, codingblocks.net slash episode 15. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, more using your favorite podcast app, and please be sure to give us a review on iTunes and Stitcher. And visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find the show notes, examples, discussions, and more. And visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes. <laughs> 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 so, somebody yeah. wasn't paying attention. Oh, we we just had to nudge him to wake him up. Yep. How do you guys listen to us? I don't know. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> so think- send us your feedback, your questions, and your answer comments to comments at codingbox.net. And follow us on Twitter because I'm starting to get a complex about it. 
at Coding Blocks. <laughs> I don't know. He really is. Like, like, we get retweeted. We get all this stuff, but nobody follows us. Yeah, it's really crazy. It's like 60, you know, somebody is feeling companies. alone. <laughs> Complex has been initiated. <laughs> all right. That's it, guys. We'll uh, be back soon with episode 15. Well, this was episode 15. Or 16. Yeah, we're 17. That might get cut. Who's not paying attention now? <laughs> hey, I didn't say well, I was awake. It's I just, 11. <laughs> oh, it's 11.10 almost. <laughs>